Questions, questions, questions. I need to have a poll. Who among you loved, loved to ask questions? Okay. Who are those who actually love to be asked questions of? So you see, um, questions are an integral part of uh, daily life. I, I did some research while I was preparing for this sermon. I won't quote the source because I tell my students, don't quote that source in a research paper. Um, but when I ask a question, how many questions people ask per day? Children ask about 300 questions per day. Uh, but when we, we become adults, that drops to about 20 to 40 questions per day. I think that's a big gap. But you see, questions are the fabric of, of relationships. Questions are important to our daily lives, as I mentioned earlier. Um, if you need clarifying an issue, questions are the way to go. Uh, if we are lost, some of us, ask questions for direction. Um, when there's crisis, uh, often questions are ways in which we can actually uh, come out of that. Questions are the heart of relationship. Uh, when you're studying a language or visit a place, the first things that you learn that becomes very helpful is, what's your name? Um, where is this or that? Um, how old are you? And in relationships, there are times when questions like, will you go out with me? Or even better yet, uh, will you marry me? These are important questions. Let me ask two more, and those are questions to you. What is the most important question you've ever asked of someone? Just think about that. Here's the second one. What's the most important question that's ever been asked of you or to you? So questions make relationship, but press questions can also break a relationship. Um, the story is told of a young man who traveled 5,000 miles across the Atlantic in order to meet his girlfriend's family. Um, he visited with the family, talked to the father, asked for her hand in marriage. Uh, he said yes. He proposed. The, you know, she said yes. And then they began to prepare their wedding. For about a week, there's a conversation that's going on that they cannot guess, get past as to how should they make those invitations. The bride-to-be insists on making those invitations by hand, and the groom-to-be is insisting, no, 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 we need to order those invitations. This goes on for about a week. Until the groom realized, maybe a question might be helpful here, he asked, how many invitations do you plan to make by hand? She answered, 40. He's like, honey, um, we sh we're going to have three to 500 people at the wedding. Can you make all of this by hand? She's like, no, I'm not going to have 500 people at my wedding. And he responded, well, we can't have a wedding then if we don't have that many people. You see, a well-crafted question can clear up misunderstanding. A well-crafted question reveals and even challenges things that we take for granted. A well-crafted question 
gets to the heart of what we're trying to find out. And the heart of the question is the ultimate purpose for that question. I believe that in our relationship with God, there are two questions that are central. First one is the where. The second one is the who. The first one characterizes a search that began in Eden, continued in Bethlehem, and continues to happen until today. The second one has to do with who Jesus Christ is. In Genesis chapter 3, we see God searching for humanity and he's asking the question, where are you? And in Matthew, we see humanity now looking for God with the question, where is the newborn king of the Jews? And as the Gospels unfold, the idea about who Jesus is, his identity, takes center stage. Throughout the Gospel of John, which was read today, God's search for humanity and humanity's search for God are intertwined with questions about Jesus' identity. It is a search that we see John put within encounter stories, stories where people seek Jesus out or Jesus is seeking people out. And often during these encounters, people are faced with questions from Jesus that challenge their presupposition, that challenge their prejudices, their theology, that challenge long-held beliefs they have about themselves, about their communities, and about God. The heart of the question of where is he is answered by who is he? The search for or encounter for Jesus leads to a better knowledge about his identity. There are three encounter stories in the Gospel of John that when we read them together, they shed light on two important points that John is driving home. The first is the signs that Jesus performs points to his identity and lead to belief. The second one, Jesus had a deep and intimate knowledge of human nature. John sets that up in John chapter 2, 23-24, when he says, Many people believe in his name because they saw the signs he was performing, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all people. He understood human nature. So in those stories, which we find in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman, John chapter 9 with the blind beggar, the character is longing and searching for something. In all three stories, the main character is looking for someone. In all three stories, the line of questioning that we find when they encounter Jesus Christ opens the door to something else. It opens the door to something more, something that they were not even aware of or something that they not, didn't even think was possible. But it was something that they needed. And this can be both a rewarding and a destabilizing experience. So as we read all, stories, all these stories, we find three key things I want to point out. And the first one is a personal encounter with Jesus Christ challenges our presuppositions and prejudices and pushes a person out of their comfort zone. In John chapter 3, verses 2 to 10, we see Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus Christ. He comes to Jesus by night. We're told he's a Pharisee. Not just a Pharisee, he's a ruler among them. He's part of the ruling, uh, ruling party within the, within the Jewish council. 
he comes to Jesus by night to have a conversation. Given the tenor of, Jesus, of Nicodemus' conversation, he seems that Nicodemus is already affirming Jesus Christ. We're told that he is part of perhaps the group that believes in what Jesus Christ is doing. And he's coming to show Jesus his support. But he's also coming because he wants to know more. He begins his conversation with affirming Jesus Christ. But before long, you see that Nicodemus begins to kind of get destabilized by Jesus' response. Because Jesus Christ takes the conversation in a very different direction than Nicodemus wants it. If you read between John chapter 3, 2 to 10, we find Nicodemus starting, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs that you're performing unless God is with him. Jesus' response picks up where Nicodemus is, but moves it beyond. Well, very truly, I tell you, unless a person is born from above or born again, they're not able to see the kingdom of God. That cadence continues throughout the conversation. When Nicodemus goes and talks about, well, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's room and be born. And Jesus responds, well, yeah, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the Spirit and born of water. And Nicodemus is like, well, how can this be? Jesus responds, you're Israel's rabbi, and you do not know these things? So from, Jesus, from Nicodemus coming to the rabbi and stating he knows, Jesus ends the conversation almost with a rabbi, you don't know these things? Interestingly, though, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about theological concepts that Nicodemus should know about. In Joel 2, 28-29, God promises that he's going to pull his spirit on all flesh. In Ezekiel 36, he talks about he's going to wash Israel with water. I'm going to take your heart of stone. I'm going to put a heart of flesh. In Ecclesiastes, the passage talks about God works in mysterious ways. We don't know how the spirit, the breath of God, enters a mother's womb to give life to the bones of a child. So Nicodemus should know these things. And Jesus Christ is pushing him from not just acknowledging, yeah, you are the, you're the one we've been waiting for, a prophet from God, to something more. A heart transformation is needed to understand truly who Jesus is and what it is that he's after. The second story is in John chapter 4. It's the story of the Samaritan woman. And in that encounter, Jesus approaches the Samaritan in broad daylight, asks for water, and engages her in what turned out to be a lively conversation about their cultural and theological differences. In John 4, 7 to 15, the conversation that starts with, uh, talk to the hand, turns out to be a conversation where there is acceptance. Jesus asks, uh, will you give me a drink? And the woman, uh, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. How dare you ask for a drink? Well, if you know the gift of God and who asks you, 
you actually should be the one asking me, not the other way around. And the woman's like, well, this well is really deep and you've got nothing. How can you actually draw water and give me? But you see in the conversation, it goes from the well is deep to I'm going to give you water that will spring forth. You don't need anything because the water I give you is running water that actually wells up from within you. The water that Jacob gives is one that produces thirst. The water that I give is one that will quench your thirst forever. From Jesus asking water, you have the woman now. Sir, can you give me this water? What follows is an honest conversation that will lead the woman to actually then go to her community and invite them to come and meet Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman follows a similar pattern with Nicodemus, although there are some really key contrasts. Nicodemus is the one who comes to Jesus and initiates the conversation, whereas Jesus actually invades the woman's privacy, invades her space, and begins a conversation. We have a situation where Nicodemus begins with perceived knowledge, yet only to be faced with the lack of understanding about things that really matter. The Samaritan begins with power and theological distance, and as the conversation goes on, she gains understanding about Jesus' identity. Whereas Nicodemus compares Jesus with Moses, the Samaritan woman compares Jesus with Jacob. But like Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman interprets Jesus' words literally, while Jesus is pushing her to open her mind to something more. Like the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus invites her to reevaluate what she knows. He leads her through, wait for it, a process of deconstructing her faith. But that deconstruction leads her closer to Christ, not away from him. The third story is the story of the man born blind, the blind beggar. And we find that in John chapter 9. John had told us already that Jesus Christ has a good grasp of human nature. He demonstrates that by the way he's, he talks to the woman. He tells her everything he's, you know, she's ever done. But John also is demonstrating how Jesus, how the signs Jesus performed connects to his identity. What he says, he does, which is also the point that Nicodemus is making. We know that you are a prophet from God because the things you do, you, the things you say, you do. And in John chapter 8, 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So now in John chapter 9, by making this miracle, he is substantiating the claim that he made. Only God can do those things. So the healing of the, born, the man born blind kind of challenges the presuppositions of the people that witness it. And it starts with the disciples because they're walking by and in their mind, this gentleman who's blind had to have done something wrong or his parents should have. They're not wrong. Because in the Bible, Deuteronomy tells them 
if you do what is right, you will prosper. If you do what is wrong, sickness and other things will come your way. So when they ask the question, uh, Jesus who sinned, him or his parents, they are acting from within theological principles that they will have grown up with and learned. Jesus' response, though, deconstructs that. But he doesn't deconstruct it just for the sake of deconstructing their theology. He crafts his answer in a way that takes the disciples' attention away from the issue itself and points it towards his uh, identity. They can focus on him. Rabbi, they ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus again take those words and turn them around. Neither this man nor his parents, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed or made visible. Blindness, vision in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of the one who sent me because night is coming when no one can work. While I am the light, in the, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Secondly, the healing doesn't just destabilize the disciples. It also puts the blind man in a difficult situation. You see, the healing happened on the Sabbath. And the, not the Bible, the additional laws that the rabbis, the rabbis had, had added to the, to the culture at the time, if you need during the Sabbath, that's considered work. Therefore, you have broken the Sabbath. So by Jesus Christ molding mud to put on the gentleman's eyes, they considered that he had just performed a work duty during the Sabbath. So he has broken the law. That's a problem. The other issue is because now he is seeing, the Pharisees perhaps wanted and needed to validate that a miracle actually did take place. So they brought him to the Pharisees, and now he has to testify about not just what's happened to him, but about a person that he may or may not have a decent knowledge on of. Now, we, the text doesn't tell us, but it's possible that the gentleman hasn't seen Jesus Christ because we don't know when he washed and now can see if Jesus is still around. We don't know that. So that's a tough predicament to actually testify about him. He doesn't know where Jesus is, but based on what Jesus has done for him, he can testify in a significant way about who he is. Well, um, he's probably not a sinner, that much we know, because he's done this, perhaps a prophet. In all three encounters, everyone is operating from a cultural and theological foundation that's rooted in traditional interpretation of Scripture. It's not that they're necessarily asking the wrong questions, but what we find is that Jesus is using their questions as an opportunity to take them on a deeper level, to a deeper level. Jesus is interacting with them to lead them away, the, from, away from their presuppositions and towards him, towards a better relationship with him. The second thing we notice is that a personal encounter with Jesus leads to a deeper and clearer understanding of Jesus' identity. 
in Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's a promise there from Moses that God also gave to the children of Israel that he will send for the children of Israel a prophet like Moses. And he clearly says there, listen to him. So Nicodemus, when he's talking about, well, yeah, we can see that you're a prophet from God because no one can do those things. Nicodemus is reaching out from, to that promise, which is why Jesus Christ takes the opportunity to talk about Moses. Yes, just like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man shall also then be lifted up. But what Jesus Christ is doing there is take Nicodemus' understanding of the prophet like Moses to say, well, guess what? I'm bigger, better than just someone like Moses. I am the Son of Man who's been in God's presence. And whereas the serpent, those who look upon him, upon that serpent, may die again, those who look to me will have eternal life. The serpent is a reference in Numbers where the children of Israel, because of their disobedience, were punished with serpents that bit them and they will die. God asks Moses to craft a bronze serpent and anyone who looks on it then uh, is, is healed. So Jesus Christ is talking to Nicodemus and helping him understand, I'm better than the one that was spoken of. No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven. The Son of Man, just as Moses lifted the snake, the Son of Man must also be lifted up. We don't know how Nicodemus reacted to Jesus' revelation about himself. But with the Samaritan woman, we see a gradual understanding of Jesus' identity. In their conversation, she went from, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, to, uh, sir, how can we have, to, uh, wait, 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 what? <laughs> you must be a prophet. To the point where, is this the Messiah? So the longer the conversation goes, the more understanding she gets. A similar thing happens to the blind beggar, although it's more kind of in a roundabout way. It's more complex. Where is he? I don't know. To who is he? Uh, a prophet, maybe? Definitely not a sinner. To the place where he finds Jesus Christ and see him with his own eyes, and Jesus Christ asks, do you now believe in the Son of Man? It's like, well, who is he so that I may worship him? I am he, and he expresses his belief and worship Jesus Christ. The encounter with Jesus Christ destabilizes the person, challenges their presuppositions, deconstructs their theology, but brings them closer to a deeper relationship, not the other way around. The third and perhaps the most important thing is that a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, though it seems to be an individual thing, impacts the whole community. We will be mistaken to think that the stories, these three stories, are just about the individuals that are mentioned. While Jesus Christ interacts with them, the community is behind all of these stories. Both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman approach their conversations with Jesus Christ with their community in mind. What's more, their initial posture is shaped by the community that they came from. In other words, the place they worship, 
their ethnicity, their educational background, their status within the community, and the place they grew up. All of that shapes that. In John 3, 11 and 12, we see that conversation between Jesus Christ and, uh, and Nicodemus, where earlier on, Nicodemus is already posturing himself as not talking about just himself. Rabbi, he says, we know, we know that you are a teacher from, who is from God, John 3, 2, John 3, 7. Don't be surprised when I say to you, Nicodemus, singular, you all must be born again. Jesus' statement to Nicodemus is not just for Nicodemus. It's about the entire community. Very truly, I tell you, singular Nicodemus, we speak of what we know, we testify to you of what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you, plural, of earthly things, so how will you all believe if I speak of heavenly things? So reading that story is a story of the community's response to Jesus Christ. He's not just talking to Nicodemus. But what's more is that Jesus is talking to a community that's divided. It's a community that witnesses the signs that Jesus performs. Some believe and then others reject those signs. We get a clearer sense of that by looking at the Pharisees' response to the blind beggar's uh, healing. When we read in John 9, 13 to 34, what we find is one of the most humorous stories in the Bible, but also one of the most tragic. It's tragic because it gives us a depiction and a reminder of what can happen when we prioritize prior knowledge and tradition over a clear evidence of the work of God within the community. It's tragic because it reminds us of what can happen when prejudice, when fear, peer pressure closes our eyes to the new things that God is doing among us. It's tragic because it's a reminder of what can happen when a community chooses exclusion over hospitality because the witness of God's work in their midst does not meet preconceived or agreed-upon expectations. They will not believe the testimony of the blind beggar, although he tells them multiple times. His parents will not dare speak on his behalf because of fear. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others, and I imagine Nicodemus is within them and among them, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Two responses, belief, rejection. Same signs, same evidence, different responses. But in contrast to Nicodemus and the former blind beggars, community's response is the response of the community from the Samaritan woman. Mind you, the Samaritan woman's community had a deeper learning curve, steeper learning curve, and a more difficult theological challenge to overcome. The animosity between Samaritans and Jews 
the polemic, the political bad blood between the two communities run deep for a very long time. So the conversation between she and Jesus Christ was a very difficult conversation for her. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you, Jews, claim that the place where we worship must be Jerusalem. Again, she's not talking about herself, but her community. Jesus' response is also the same. Woman, believe me, the time is coming when you, or plural, will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you know, what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. This is a difficult conversation. Yet, the fact that Jesus revealed that he knew about her is enough evidence for the Samaritan woman to pause and ask herself, could this be? It's enough for her to have the courage to go back to her community and ask the same question. And why has her community paid attention to her witness and set out to meet the one who may be the Messiah, whose identity is completely opposite from the one they were waiting for, Jesus' community, his own community, chooses to stay with their own. Three stories, two communities. One community is united behind the testimony of one woman. The other remains divided despite the testimonies of multiple, of multiple witnesses. And they claim to be Moses' disciples, which tells them clearly multiple witnesses should be good enough for a testimony. In light of these, there are four things I want to point out. The first one is this. Belief is not the absence of doubt, but a clear understanding of who Jesus is. You see, the woman's initial invitation to her community is still filled with doubt. When she says, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done, he cannot be the Messiah, can he? In the, initial, in the original language, the question is posed in a way that's expecting a negative answer. She's not expecting that her community is going to say yes. Yet, when they come and actually do life with Jesus Christ, they're able to now solidify that answer, to say, yeah, now we know that he truly is the Messiah. Jesus' testimony changed that. The blind man is also filled with doubt because, as I mentioned earlier, chances are, chances are, he has not yet seen Jesus' face to face. He doesn't know where he is. So even as he's testifying, the one thing he knows, the one thing he can tell for sure, I was blind, now I see. Only a man who is in connection with God can do that. And then later on, when he meets Jesus face to face, he's able to solidify his belief. Belief is not the absence of doubt, but a clear understanding of who Jesus is. Second one is, 
Discipleship happens at the crucible of life and amidst life's toughest questions. God can take the tough questions that you have for him. Ask away. Let me say it again. God can take all the tough questions that you may have for him. Ask away. But what we have seen is from Job to Habakkuk, from the psalmist to Jeremiah, from Daniel in Babylon to John on Patmos, the best and only answer that we have, that humanity's questions will get and has received, is only a clearer vision of God's presence. In other words, the why and the where are always answered with, here I am. This is who I am. And a vision of God, a clearer vision of God, changes our perspective. Thirdly, the church has an important role to play for people who are wrestling with the implications of their encounter with Christ. Humanity is nothing without community. Whatever society may tell you, in the Genesis account, the one time that God says something was not good was it's not good for the human person to be alone. Let's make him a strong companion to be with him. The next step for that personal encounter is back to the community. You see, Difficult questions, unexpected life events, differences of opinion can push us from one another or they can bring us closer to each other. It's like Deuteronomy. I have set before you life and death. Choose life so that you may live. Life is going to be challenging. Our life together is going to be messy. Choose to stick together. Because only within the community can we really truly find our humanity. If you're still wondering about that couple earlier, they managed to figure it out. They managed to figure it out. We got married in Haiti, and there were about three to 500 people there. And then we had a ceremony in Russia where there were 40 people. And Lara made every single invitation by hand. Challenges should not push us away from each other, but bring us together, because in the community, we find our true identity. It means that people need a hospitable and safe community where they can raise their difficult questions, questions about their faith, questions about their walk with God. It means that the church needs to be a nurturing community that remains alert to the move of the Holy Spirit, a community that creates space for us to get to the heart of the question. Because you see, the heart of the question is a question of the heart. If the heart of the question is a purpose why we ask the question, it is a question of the heart because our posture makes all the difference in the world. Individually or collectively, 
Our posture makes a difference. Our questions, our inner wrestling, our deconstruction, when done properly, when done with the right posture, must lead us to a deeper relationship with Christ. Our revaluation must lead us to a deeper longing for home, to the place where we can quench our thirst, to the place where his light can shine through us to dispel the darkness around us.